Good morning. Open your Bibles to John 1, verses 14 through 18. John 1, verses 14 through 18. As we continue our series in the Gospel of John, as we start, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We honor you. We recognize there's no one like you. What a blessing it is that we can come corporately as the body and worship you, glorify you, praise you, help our lives to be an act of worship to you, Father. Thank you for this time that we can dive into your word. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins. In Christ's name we pray, amen. John 1, verse 14 starts by saying this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the one only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says the word, which is Christ, became flesh. This may not sound that astounding to us if we've heard this all our lives, but this should blow our minds. The creator, the God of the universe, came down to earth and dwelt with his creation. God literally pitched a tent and lived with the people that he created. Amen? But what is more mind-boggling, impossible for us to comprehend, is that Christ was both God and man at the same time, he was 100% God and 100% man simultaneously. The theological fancy term for this is called hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. Jesus was one person and two distinct natures. But the question is, why did Christ come? Why did he have to come and be, and be a human like us? Well, Hebrews 2 17 sheds some light on that. It says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Hebrews is saying that Christ became like one of us in all ways. He was born as a baby dependent on his parents like us, he faced weaknesses of the flesh like us. He was tired. He, was, he, he got hungry at times. Sometimes he was thirsty. He was tempted and tried like us as well. And yet, he was sinless. He was perfect in all his ways. Which leads to point number one. Christ lived a perfect life and died as a perfect sacrifice. Let me say that again. Christ lived a perfect life and died as a perfect sacrifice. We see that no human could have been a perfect sacrifice. The, the sacrifice had to be sinless. It had to be spotless. It had to be righteous. There could be no one else that could do that except Christ. Except Christ. Who else lived a perfect life? Who else has been righteous in the Father's sight? Can we imagine living perfectly? Every thought of God, every action of God, every word of God, every motive of Christ was to honor and glorify the Father. 
Every relationship, every conversation, every response, every decision, every act of service, every moment of the day was handled perfectly by Christ. Submitted to the authority of the Father. That's how Christ lived on this earth. But let's continue on in verse 15. Where John the Apostle turns to John the Baptist. And he says this, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John says something really crystal clear for us to understand. Really easy for us, right? John the Baptist says, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Well, that's pretty self-explanatory, right? John says, Jesus who came after me really is much greater than me. By the way, he was before me. On the surface, this looks like a clear contradiction. The critics would love to get their hands on this and think, look at how ridiculous the Bible is. They always con- it always contradicts itself. How can John say he was before Jesus, yet Jesus was before him? Some of us might be scratching our head thinking, man, maybe John the Baptist had a little too much locusts and honey, Right? But that's not the case at all. John the Baptist was led by the power of the Spirit. John the Baptist was born physically before Christ. If we look back at Luke 1, we find out that John was about six months older than Jesus. That's why it says, he who comes after me. But also Jesus existed before John as God. If we remember in John 1, 3, it says all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus made, Jesus made John when he was one with the Father. Everything was created through Christ, including John the Baptist. That's why John says Jesus is ranked before me and concludes that Jesus was before him. Do we got it? Does this make any sense? Let's sort of wrap this up. Let's conclude this. And let's read John 1 verse 15 again. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said. And I'm going to have this rest of the part on the board so we can follow along on the screens here. And the first part says, He who comes after me. He who comes after me, which is disgusting. There it is. He who comes after me, is saying John's birth was earlier than Christ. And then it goes on says, he who ranks before me, Jesus was greater than John. And then, it, and then John the Baptist finally says, because he was before me. Because Jesus was before John in the sense that Jesus was God. He self-existed for all eternity before he came to this earth. But don't get me wrong. John was important. As his birth was announced by angels. Let's look at that in Luke 1, verses 11 through 17. Luke 1, verses 11 through 17, and they'll be on the screens behind me. And this is what it said. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. 
And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. Can we imagine again, John's birth was announced by angels, but it goes on in verse 14 and it says, many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 15, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Verse 16, he will turn many back to God. Verse 17, he will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. So there's no doubt that John the Baptist was special. He was important. God had a unique position for him. John paved the way for Christ Jesus. But what happened to John? Having such an important position. I mean, he must have been honored. He must have been blessed beyond measure. Maybe even blessed financially, right? Had a huge following. Maybe he started the first megachurch. We can imagine his legacy and how he was honored after he died. They probably made statues in honor of John the Baptist, right? Well, not exactly. We find out that John didn't even get a party thrown in his name. He didn't receive anything in this life. He used all his energy to point people to Christ. John made much about Christ. And then he was sent to prison and then beheaded. After the Gospels, John is not mentioned. It's like John has been forgotten. A man who was announced by angels is now gone. John wasn't honored by this world. There wasn't plaques written in his name, no statues built in his honor. His legacy, his heritage was swallowed up in Christ. That's the way he wanted it. John didn't want any credit. He wasn't worried about being honored or remembered. John's motivation was to spend, to devote, to use up his life for Christ. The question is, what legacy will you leave? What legacy will I leave? Are we hoping that our name will live on and people will honor us, maybe have a holiday in our name, right? Or are we wanting to point people to Christ and then die? Is our life wrapped up in Christ this morning? This leads to point number two. It's not about our legacy, but our faithfulness to Christ. It's not about our legacy, but our faithfulness to Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's what we're here to be, faithful. How faithful are we this morning to Christ Jesus? Let me ask, what will be written on our tombstone one day? Will it be something that focuses on us like, Jason was such a good guy. He was so caring. He was so generous. He was such an amazing guy. Or will it be something like this? Jason was a faithful servant to Christ. John the Baptist knew his purpose was to be faithful to Christ. As he says in later in John, I must decrease and he that is Christ must increase. What a beautiful prayer 
We can pray and ask the Lord to help us to make much about Him instead of ourselves. What does it look like to turn from our own agendas and follow Christ? What does it look like to empty ourselves of, our, of us and be controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit? I must decrease. Christ must increase. For many of us, this means radical changes, radical transformation in our life right this minute. For some of us, it means we need to turn to Christ in faith for the first time. We need to repent and believe in Christ Jesus for the first time and become a child of God. But what about for those of us who have already learned about the Lord, who trusted the Lord, who have already been following the Lord? For some of us, we may need to just stop quiet our minds and sit down with the word of God and get to know him and build a real relationship with him. This means we may need to put our phones, our iPads, our computers away and have a single-minded focus on Christ and his word. He's worth this. When is the last time we sat down and prayed without looking at our phone every two minutes? When's the last time we spent time meditating and wrestling in the Word of God without outside distractions? What about our homes? What about our marriages? What about our family? Is Christ at the center of our homes? I must decrease. He must increase. Some of us think we need to dream big to accomplish our goals. Yet, for some reason, the biggest responsibility we have right in front of our faces, our families, are often put to the side. We've been so busy on our, working on our own dreams and agendas that we've ignored the most important thing we have, our families leading them, loving them, and serving them the way we're called to from Scripture. For others, it means giving like we've never given before because we have enough. Our time, our talents, our finances are given to us to be used up for God's glory. Amen? Whatever the Lord asks us, we must surrender to him. We must listen to him. We are only here for a little while, dear friends. And then we're gone. His grace is sufficient. He deserves everything we have. But let's continue on in John 1 verse 16. John 1 verse 16. And it says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What does John mean by fullness here? Fullness means completion. It means finality. Christ was the epitome of grace. Before Christ... God did give grace to those in the Old Testament, but not until the fullness of Christ was grace fully manifested through Christ. That's why John says, we have received grace upon grace. We get a picture of waves of the sea continuing the crash on the shore of the sea over and over again. Similarly, Grace is relentless. It's, way, it's like waves of the sea. It just continues to pour itself on us. Charles Spurgeon asks the question, what's grace? What is grace? 
And this is how he responded. Grace is the free favor of God, the undeserved bounty of the ever-gracious creator against whom we have offended, the generous pardon, the infinite, spontaneous, loving kindness of the God who has been provoked and angered by our sin, but who, delighting in mercy and grieving to smite the creatures whom he has made, is ever ready to pass by transgressions, iniquity, and sin, and to have his people from all evil consequences of their guilt. Point number three says this, Christ conquered sin by giving us unending eternal grace. Christ conquered sin by giving us unending eternal grace. How much of our sin is forgiven in Christ Jesus? Well, Scripture says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 5.20 God has given us freedom. We have total pardon because of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is for past, present, and future sin. If we are in Christ Jesus. But I'm afraid many of us really do not understand that what Christ has done for us. Because we really don't understand the gravity of our depravity. We don't see the depth of how sinful we really are. Without a depth of sin, we don't see the abundance of grace either. Let me ask us a few questions that reveal if we're taking our sins seriously this morning. How often are we repenting of our sin? As Christians, how often are we repenting of our sins? Do we daily confess our sin? Do we mourn over our sin? Is our heart broken over the sinfulness that we still commit before our Lord? If I asked what sins do you struggle with, what would you tell me? Many times when I'm talking about this with others, even supposed mature believers in Christ, they have no clue what sins they struggle with in the present moment. That's a problem. If Paul, the apostle who wrote almost half the New Testament, struggled with sin, surely we do as well still too. Paul said, I am worst, I am chief, I am foremost of sinners, he says. The world ignores sin, sin, as we mentioned last week. Churches all around us ignore sin. And plus, we have bad theology that teaches in Christ we are now perfected. Sin isn't a problem anymore. We are now saints. We are perfect in God's sight. Positionally, of course, that is true. We are saints in God's sight, and that's true. But daily, we still struggle with the flesh. Ask your spouse. She knows. He knows you do. Well, this leads to point number four. Christ opens our eyes to the reality of our sinfulness, and he frees us with his grace. Point number four says, Christ opens our eyes to the reality of our sinfulness and frees us with his grace. (laughs) Without, Without seeing our sin, we will not see grace either. They go hand in hand. Without grace, we become like the Pharisees who didn't see themselves clear at all. They didn't see Christ clear at all. And they judged everyone else harshly. They were the Pharisees. But the question is, what happens when we actually see Christ for who he is and we actually turn to him the way we're called to? 
Well, Christ's holiness shines on us, and we begin to see ourselves correctly. We see our sinfulness. We see the darkness that still resides in us, and how it affects us all the way to our hearts in the way we, how we think, and the way we even act at this moment. And we repent. And as we do, Christ shows us his unmerited, his loving kindness, his grace. And this grace frees us and changes our perspective towards everything in life, including ourselves, how we view God, how we view the world, how we view one another. We now live in thankful gratitude towards God because now we recognize everything in our life is grace. Amen? We don't deserve anything, and yet God pours out his grace on us, and yet God pours out his grace on us, and yet God continues to pour his grace on us, and yet he pours his grace on us, and yet God pours his grace on us. Is this becoming awkward? What does it look like when grace is brought into our marriage? What does it look like when grace is brought into our home? What does it look like when grace is brought into how we parent our children? What does it look like when we see people through the lens of grace? Grace brings gratitude. It shows humility. Grace encourages us and others. Grace brings freedom from bondage. Grace can break the hardest of hearts. Grace is motivated from a heart of love. Love for God and love for others. If God has shown us such grace, how are we showing others grace this morning? How are we being dispensers of grace to others? Well, let's continue on in John 1, verse 17. John 1, verse 17. And it says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus talks about, or John talks about Moses because the law was given through Moses, right? And Jesus is a fulfillment of the law. That's why it says grace and truth has come through Christ, which leads to point number five. The law was a shadow of grace. Point number five says the law was a shadow of Christ. The law was a shadow of Christ. Christ is much greater than the law. Without Christ, the law is rendered useless. The law is a shadow. It's a shell of what became a reality through Jesus Christ. We can find complete truth and grace in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen? John Piper has this amazing quote, and this is what he says. The contrast is that Moses points to grace, but Jesus performs grace. Moses reports words of God. Jesus is the word of God. The law mirrors the light of God. Jesus is the light of God. Well, let's continue on. And I'm going to reread verse 17 and move on to verse 18. And it says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
John also recognizes that Moses was the most famous Old Testament figure who who received the law, but he also had a close friendship, fellowship with God, which was a unique thing in the Old Testament. It was so close that in Exodus 33, Moses asked God to show him his glory. In essence, Moses asked God, God, let me see all of you, not just a little bit of you. Let me see you in all your fullness, all your brilliance, all your glory. Let's pick that up in Exodus 33, 18 through 23, and it will be on the screens behind us here. Exodus 33, 18 through 23 says this. Moses asked, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses was able to see the back of God, and all his goodness passed by Moses as the Lord covered Moses with his hand, right? Why? Why did God have to cover Moses' eyes with his hands? Well, because it says, right, God, we can't live and see God's presence. We can't see all of God. We can't see all his holiness, his glory, and live, it says, right? And then Exodus 34 tells us that Moses comes down from, the Mount, from Mount Sinai, and it says, his face shined. His face shined brilliantly, it says. He was in the presence of the glory of God, and it caused his face to glow. And yet John says this, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So John says there's only one who has seen the Father, one who has been with him, one who is truly God himself, and that is Jesus Christ. Point number three, or number six says, when we see Christ, we see God. When we see Christ, we see God. Moses got a glimpse of God while Jesus is God. Do we recognize that Jesus is God this morning? Are we living our lives like he is Lord and Savior? And I'm not talking about one time walking the altar or praying a prayer or being baptized or raising a hand. I'm asking us if our lives reveal that Jesus is both Lord and Savior on how we are living this moment. Are we living for Christ? Am I living for Christ? Well, I want to end this morning by looking at a man who turned to Christ, who became consumed by God's grace, and he saw the depth of his depravity. He lived in the 17th century, and he was born in a godly home, and as a young boy, his parents would teach him Scripture. And he knew he was dearly loved by them. They had an amazing family. But tragically, both of his parents died, and the young boy became an orphan. And the young 
young orphan went to live with some of his relatives who mistreated him, abused him, ridiculed him because of his, 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 his faith, his understanding, his interest in Christ. It got so bad that the young boy decided to run away and join the Royal Navy. And in the Royal Navy, as a boy, he got into many fights and brawls, got beaten up often, and he started participating in keel hauling. I wonder if we know what keel hauling is. His comrades. Keel hauling is a process of tying a line around the waist of a person and throwing them overboard and dragging them in the water for a period of time. This could result in serious injury and even death. But after time and time of going through this, this young boy said, I had enough of this. The boy who was still young decided to desert the Royal Navy and fled to Africa where he attached himself to a Portuguese slave trader. This is where his life reached rock bottom. He was often so hungry that he would eat whatever he could find on the floor. But after so long, he decided this is craziness. Again, he fled and got hooked up with another slave trader as first mate on a ship. By this time, he was a young man. And he was quite ungodly, wicked, and depraved to say the least. He would steal whiskey on the ship and get drunk often just to numb himself from all the pain, all the struggles that he was dealing with, and to numb his conscience because he knew he was running from God. And one time, he got so drunk that he even fell overboard the ship and almost drowned, but luckily his shipmates harpooned him and brought him back to the ship. As a result, he had a huge scar on his side for the rest of his life. But the young man realized his life wasn't going anywhere as he went from one one crazy and wild experience to the next until one day he met the Lord. He met the Lord. During a bad storm as he was pumping water out of the ship, he was, for uh, they don't know why, a mysterious reason, he was often all of a sudden just remembering scripture that he learned as a young child. He was remembering all the scriptures his parents taught him. And instantly, at that moment, he was converted. The Holy Spirit transformed him into a believer in Christ Jesus in that moment. He later reflected on his life, and he penned these famous words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. This man was none other than John Newton, who became the great man of God. John Newton recognized grace. Grace radically transformed John Newton's life. He was astounded by God's grace. He lived a life of grace. Well, I want to conclude the sermon with a quote. May this quote by Kent Hughes speak directly to our hearts this morning. Let's listen to what he says. May we learn to receive grace upon grace so our lives will become richer and more beautiful and more joyful through grace. May we be people who receive grace upon grace, who then give out grace in response to the effects of sin, misery, and horror in this world. God wants us to be filled with his fullness and possess it. Grace is ours. May God help us to appropriate this power called grace. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we are in awe of your grace. 
We're in awe of Christ Jesus for what he has done for us. And I say we're in awe, but often we're really not in awe at all, Father. So forgive us as we leave this place. Help us to be in awe of you. Help us to get a glimpse of Christ like Moses got a glimpse of you and be in awe of you and and walk in that awe every day instead of letting trials and tribulations and blessings overcome our awe of you. Help us to be amazed by your grace. May we be a church that's amazed by your grace. May we walk out that grace and be dispensers of grace to others on Marco Island, to others in Naples, to others all over the globe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.